BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, February 28th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Chris, the inspiration for this week's guest came when on the same day I was at a bookstore and I saw a book that caught my eye called Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality. And I thought, well, if somebody can equate love and math. That's definitely interesting. And the same day I read a New York Times op-ed piece about how we might just be living in a simulation just like in The Matrix. And it turns out that both pieces were by the same author, a mathematician at the University of California in Berkeley named Edward Frankel. And so I thought that we should definitely have him on our show to maybe rekindle or kindle for the first time a love for math, at least in my heart. Yeah, first time for me. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. We'll see if it works. So this is what he had to say about why math just might be something that we should take a second look at. Mathematics is invading our our world. It's becoming more and more ubiquitous in so many areas of our daily lives. Think about algorithms uh, that are governing uh, our lives more and more. Every time you go to buy a book on Amazon or rent a movie on uh, Netflix, you are presented with recommendations which are based on sophisticated mathematical algorithms. They analyze your past choices. They correlate you with other people and then spit out this this, this, you know, suggestions. And it, it, it might seem like a small thing, but it's not because so to a large extent, it's this kind of algorithm is starting to determine uh, our lifestyles, things we do, things we learn, things we read, things we watch and so on. So, Andre, it was inspiring to listen to this interview, although I got to say, no dispute that math is all around us, no dispute that it would be great if we understood what they are doing with it. But I am a little skeptical that it's as easy as Frankel seems to think to bring us all back to some state of numeracy. I don't know. I mean, maybe we're just too far gone. No, I agree with you. I think that, you know, we have a long road ahead of us. But I think just by changing the paradigm so that we're focusing in on these mathematical concepts rather than, you know, simply the way we've been teaching it for, you know, 100 years or many decades is at least the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's unfortunate that... I myself didn't get that different curriculum. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I hated math. <laughs> Confessions are on the table. Well, so that'll be our interview today. But first, Andre, let's talk about science in the news as we like to do. And I guess you've got something to tell us about one of your specialties, memory and where it physically like lives in us. Yeah, so my PhD was all about autobiographical memory, how we remember the episodes in our lives. And so that's been something that's fascinated me now for over a decade. And recently, we talked about a new way of thinking about the importance of sleep. So Maria Konnikova wrote about a study in the New York Times that showed that during sleep, the amount of fluid in our brains increases. And the idea was, was that the brain is really taking out the garbage during sleep, getting rid of the byproducts of metabolism that accumulated during all the thinking that we did during the day and kind of resetting in the morning. Well, a new study has come out that suggests that this fluid might even have a more important role in memory throughout the day and and not just at night. So, you know, usually we think about the neuron as the locus of where memories reside, right? Whether it's how their structural changes that occur with memory formation or how they communicate with each other. But ultimately, the neuron is where we've been focusing our attention. Well, this new study suggests that we should actually look at the fluid surrounding the neuron as potentially playing also an important role in memory. So let me unpack that. So the way neurons send signals to each other is by exchanging chemicals, right? They're called neurotransmitters. And, you know, most of the chemicals going from one cell to another cause the next cell to be more active. We call it excitation. It excites the neurons, becomes more active. But about 20% of the chemicals in the brain cause neurons to be less active. So they inhibit the activity of, of the neurons with which they communicate. Well, it turns out that the neurotransmitter GABA that mediates this inhibition might actually change whether it's excitatory or inhibitory depending on the fluid, the context in which it's found. So the kind of chemical makeup of the context can turn GABA into excitatory or inhibitory, which means it might play a role in memory. So it's a complete paradigm shift. So how does so how is this storing information if it's making these kinds of changes how is the neurotransmitter in effect inscribing i don't know if that's the right word you know these things that we then recall yeah so it's not the neurotransmitter itself but rather the fluid so the concentration of the fluid might actually somehow change with experience with with the way that you know when when we tr- when we're trying to lay down a memory. And of course, this is very speculative. And I wouldn't even have come across this paper. It's titled Local Impermeant Anions Establish the Neuronal Chloride Concentration, which, you know, sounds totally unrelated to memory. Give me more. Give me more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But there's a blog called Chemiotics that alerted me to one of the last sentences in this paper that suggested that maybe this concentration, this local concentration changes as memories get laid down, which means that it is a fundamental part of the memory. What amazes me is that, you know, the fact that you can still maybe have, and I know this isn't established, but with the the whole new sleep theory and then this, maybe have big new earth shattering different ideas about how the brain works. I mean, we suggest that we really have a long way to go if we're finding out things this big. Yeah, I mean, we understand a lot about memory, but there's so much more that we don't understand. And here's another direction of research that, you know, could be really promising or it could be nothing. I mean, it's still super early. But, you know, it's like we've been looking at the brain as say it's a forest and it's full of trees and the neurons are the trees and we've completely ignored the fact that the soil concentration and the groundwater might have really, you know, fundamental roles in thinking. 
Well, and either way, it was fun to gab about GABA. Ha <laughs> ha, good one. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so moving on, I want to tell you about something sciencey that interested me this week, the science of, and this is serious, how wind farms can knock down or at least weaken hurricanes. So background, there have long been crackpots who want to use some kind of technology to take out the strongest storms on Earth. And the single nuttiest idea is that if you could just hit a hurricane with a nuclear weapon, you know, you could make it dissipate. And it just turns out that this is an incredibly stupid idea because it would give you a radioactive hurricane. <laughs> and the nuclear weapon is completely wimpy in comparison to the storm. So on the National Hurricane Center's website, the government actually gets asked this question constantly, can we hit a hurricane with a nuke? And they had to answer this question. And so they actually say that the heat release in a fully developed hurricane is equivalent to a 10 megaton nuclear bomb exploding every 20 minutes. So, yeah, you can't take out hurricanes that way. But now there is a scientific paper out describing a seemingly plausible way to weaken hurricanes and, at the same time, make the world a better place. This paper is in Nature Climate Change. One of the authors is Mark Z. Jacobson, the Stanford University energy expert who we learned about in our show with Mark Ruffalo. The paper is entitled Taming Hurricanes with Arrays of Offshore Wind Turbines. And, you know, it's only a scientific thought experiment, but it seems to work. In a computer model, they model hurricanes, they model wind turbines, and what they find is that if you have enough turbines, which is a very big if, on the coast in front of a, an oncoming hurricane, these are offshore wind turbines, you can diminish the winds by between 56 and 92 miles per hour, and you can cut the storm surge by between 6 and 79%, because the hurricane approaches, the turbines take away the energy of the outer winds, that calms the waves, that reduces the friction of the wind against the waves, and that in turn weakens, as I understand it, the power supply of the hurricane, which is the warm ocean water, not, much, not as much of it as being frothed up and taken into the air and creating energy for the storm. There is a big caveat. Scientific American covered this study, and so they said, how many wind turbines do you need? The answer is 78,000. And each one is 100 meters high. So this is not a small project, but still, it's actually pretty fascinating, and you would get a lot of power for your society, too. That's really amazing. And, you know, it's, it tickles me to hear that it's the same scientist that Mark Ruffalo has been promoting and thinks might have the answer to our energy problem. And, you know, here he is proposing a solution that is completely out there. But on the other hand, you know, that just might work. Yeah, I mean, it would be super, extremely, insanely expensive. But then a landfalling hurricane in a big city is also super, insanely expensive. And Sandy is, uh, Hurricane Sandy is on the order of $60 billion in damage. And New York is contemplating seawalls that will cost $20 billion. But you know these things end up costing more than their initial number. So when you're playing with that kind of money, maybe you should just build thousands of wind turbines. Because you're probably, and I'm no expert, but you're probably getting into the same ballpark. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'd have to somehow pilot the project. And so hopefully that would give some data as to whether it's really going to do what it, the model suggests it might. Yeah, this is just this is just in a computer model for now. And I, I know what people are asking, you know, wouldn't the hurricane break the wind turbine? So Scientific American did some good reporting on this. They say that turbines lock down to, to not get damaged when the winds reach uh, 
78 miles per hour, which is just a not a very strong hurricane. Uh, once the winds get past 120, you can get real damage. Well, hurricanes can get way stronger than that. So the question is, can can these turbines weaken them so they never get powerful enough that they can actually damage uh, the turbines? Well, that you know, who knows? This is this is all about a computer model at this point. Yeah, well, it's a proactive solution, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's creative and it's very sci-fi. We like it. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break and come back with my interview with Edward Frankel. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. I want to remind you that you can stay up to date on what we are up to by following us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. These are also great places to go to get in touch with us, give us feedback on the show, or recommend future guests. And with that, back to the show. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Edward Frankel. Hello, it's good to be here. So a few weeks ago, I read a New York Times piece in which you suggested that we might just be living in the Matrix. So where did you come up with this idea? <laughs> and are we actually in a simulation? Well, who knows? We'll find out, right? Maybe there will be signs during this interview that we <laughs> are indeed in a simulation. I don't know. But... um well, the premise of, uh, of that piece in the New York Times is, is a question about the nature of mathematical concepts and ideas. And, um, I make this analogy. Um, you know, if you have, say, a work of art that you like the most, or say a book, and in my piece, I talk about, um, let's say Leo Tolstoy, uh, the famous Russian author. If you hadn't lived, or if you died young, we would never know Anna Karenina, his famous novel. There's no reason to believe that another author, another writer would write exactly the same novel. But if Pythagoras had not lived, uh, we would still have Pythagoras' theorem. Someone else would have discovered exactly the same mathematical theorem. Actually, it's funny because, you know, after this article in the New York Times, I received many uh, emails from various people, and some of them pointed out that actually Pythagoras' theorem had been discovered before Pythagoras by other people, which only reinforces, reinforces my point that exactly the same mathematical result was discovered by someone else, um, perhaps even before Pythagoras, but in any case would have been discovered anyway. And so that points to the subjective quality of mathematical knowledge and raises a natural question, where do these mathematical entities, mathematical ideas and concepts reside? And uh, if they, whether they actually are creations of the human mind or um, whether humans actually discover them and they actually live in some platonic world outside of space and time. And if that's the case, and, and actually a lot of mathematicians subscribe to this notion, it's sort of uh, natural if you're a practicing mathematician to to view these mathematical objects like geometrical, geometric shapes and numbers and spaces uh, just as real as atoms and stars. And uh, sometimes people call this a platonic view, a platonic uh, um, a philosophy uh, after famous philosopher Plato, of course. And uh, and so then the question is, well, if that's the case, how do we humans connect to these ideas? And so one speculative answer is that if we were, in fact, in some sort of a simulation, you could think of Matrix, or maybe maybe another um, reference would be uh, Inception, another film, or The 13th Floor is another one. 
that some of your listeners might be familiar with. So if, if you were in a simulation like this, which were, which were based on, on the laws of mathematics, and then that would explain this mystery. Of course, we all discover the same mathematics because it is sort of hardwired in our world from the beginning. So some people might argue that if you're, if you're saying that there is this kind of abstract notion of mathematics that is true regardless of whether or not we think about it, and that it somehow controls our world, which is the nefarious side of, of being in a simulation, right? Is that there's some all-powerful thing controlling us. Someone might argue that this, this might be an idea that, that is, is along the lines of the existence of a god, well, and some people have commented uh, uh, to me, uh, you know, this way. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that it has to be uh, something that's controlling everything. In other words, mathematics could be just one aspect of that simulation. Uh, I mean, of course, one possibility would be that everything is based on mathematics. But honestly, I don't. I, I personally don't think so. So I ju I believe that mathematics is uh, has a certain autonomy. In other words, mathematical knowledge cannot be. Uh, is not derived completely from the human mind and from physical reality. Some of it certainly is comes from physical reality. Some of it perhaps comes from 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 the human mind, but not all. But I also believe that there are many other aspects of reality which are not necessarily covered by mathematics. So there could be different notions of simulation, I suppose. I mean, there are some more crude ones and some sort of more sophisticated ones, and perhaps there could be simulation in ways which we can't even comprehend at the moment. But uh, a question that I was interested in is whether there is any way to test scientifically this hypothesis even in some some version of it and like the simplest version would be the kind of simulation that actually physicists do all the time uh, when they model um, the behavior interaction and collisions between elementary particles and actually there was a paper recently a few months ago by by three physicists who addressed exactly that question so that was sort of the um, one of the points that I discussed in that piece, um, and um, uh, as to whether actually one could test something like this scientifically. And so what's the answer? Well, the jury is still out, but at least there is, we can put it in a certain, in a certain framework, which is, which is within, uh, within the world of science. So you've also said, though, that mathematics is the last honest science. Yes, I did. So what do you mean by that? Well, so that's, that sort of goes back to this, um, uh, to this, uh, notion of mathematical knowledge being objective and independent of our perception. Um, if you think about other areas of human endeavor, um, it's, they are much more subjective. Um, your, you know, point of view can be, could be influenced by various factors. And also our points of view change over time. Even uh, hard sciences like physics and biology certainly have had uh, many different shifts of paradigms, um, you know, over the centuries. We had the Newton's theory, for example, of gravity, which for, for several centuries looked like the ultimate theory, um, which was unassailable. But then Einstein came and explained that actually there was a much more precise and complete theory, uh, the, you know, general relativity in which gravity emerged uh, from the curvature of space-time, something which Newton, which, which was very far away from the way Newton 
um, perceived perceived gravity. So this kind of shifts in our understanding of the universe are quite common in sciences. But mathematic, mathematics doesn't change in the sense that, going back to the theorem of Pythagoras, you know, it was discovered 2,500 years ago or perhaps even earlier. And um, its truth remains the same, and it doesn't change with any advances in technology or any new evidence that could emerge. And it is safe to say that the same um, theorem will be true 2,500 years from now. And moreover, it means the same thing to everyone today, as, and it means exactly the same thing as it meant to Pythagoras and Pythagoreans 2,500 years ago. So on the one hand, you're saying that if a specific mathematician didn't find the solution to a problem, for example, someone else would. So in some ways, you're all interchangeable. But in another way, if it's never going to shift the paradigm, that is that once you find the solution, that's never going to change, you have a longevity that no other science has. That's right. And also, it means exactly the same thing to everyone, regardless of uh, where we come from, what is the cultural background, what is the language we speak, etc. It is not prone to, you know, fashion and fads, to, and it's not subject to authority. It doesn't matter who said that. It could be uh, someone, you know, these days, for instance, you could have a, a, an eminent mathematician uh, uh, proving some result, but if it is not correct, then uh, any graduate student can point it out and it's not going to be subject to who is more important. It's because the notion of, the, of mathematical truth is absolute. So it's kind of just the, the big equalizer. It is a great equalizer, exactly. And this is, and this is the point that sort of, it's something we can all hold on to. That in the final, you know, at the end of the day, how can we resolve, you know, our, you know, various disputes and contradictions, etc. Um, in math, two plus two is equal to four, if you, if you, if you calculate it correctly. And so that's something that we can all agree on. And of course, you know, especially in the modern world, when we have different political views and different cultures, we come from different backgrounds and so on. It's very difficult to find things on which we all agree. And my point is that mathematical truth represent this, you know, archipelago of knowledge where we can agree on everything. And so in a way, it's, it's actually a wonderful thing, because if you think about it, it sort of creates this connections between us, that you meet someone, you don't know where they come from, what language they speak, what's, what's their background, but you already know that there is so much you have in common, because all the mathematical truths, all the mathematical ideas that have ever been discovered, you, we, you all share, we all share them, they all belong to us. And actually, no one can take them away from us, even from a legal point of view, there have been decisions of even the United States Supreme Court saying that no one can patent the mathematical formula, like E equals MC squared, the famous Einstein's formula. He couldn't patent it. He couldn't say it's mine. Nobody can take it away from me. If it, if it is correct, then it expresses a truth about our world and therefore it belongs to all of us. So it creates this sort of uh, this, this knowledge which is uniting us and connecting us. And, and it's, it's interesting because most people, unfortunately, have very bad experience with mathematics when they grew up and when they study mathematics at school. So it's sort of, I realize that it might sound as an oxymoron to most people that mathematics could be the basis and the foundation for this kind of connections, for this kind of love even, I would say. But that is the case. That is the truth. And I think that we should all awaken to this reality, this hidden reality of mathematics, and, and realize the enormous po possibilities, the infinite possibilities that they contain. 
So just as you described, most people find math just intractable. And of course, the stereotype of the mathematician is the genius who's obsessed with finding the solution to the formula that has this, you know, very passionate streak. And you have that in spades, of course, but you also have this desire to bring math to the general audience. So what is it that we're missing in school that impassions mathematicians? Well, very good question. So we have been, I mean, let's be honest, we have been deprived of the, the knowledge of this, of this crucial subject. And when I say that, let's look at the facts. If you look at the, uh, at the curriculum, that a mathematical curriculum in, in, in schools that is studied at, at schools today, and I'm not just talking about the United States, but everywhere in the world, it is, it is more than 1,000 years old. More than 1,000 years old. Uh, for example, uh, a, formula, a formula for the quadratic equations that we study at school uh, was already in the book by uh, al Khwarizmi, which was published in the year 830, uh, so more than a thousand years ago. Uh, Euclid's Elements, on which, of course, Euc Euclidean geometry is based, was, uh, was published uh, 300 BC, so 2300 years ago. And the list goes on and on. Everything in, in our curriculum today is more than 1,000 years ago. Just try to imagine that it would the same was were true in physics or biology. Then we would never know atoms and the solar system and the stars and the universe expanding and things and the DNA and things like that. So that we would be sort of in the stone age in terms of our knowledge, and that's where we are. Most of us, ninety nine percent of the people, are uh, in terms of mathematical knowledge. So that's number one. That's the first problem. The second problem is that even that even that curriculum is unfortunately taught. That is not taught in the right way. And, and a lot of people have very bad experience with that, which is understandable because, I mean, teachers are sort of, who are the teachers? The teachers uh, of today are the students of yesterday. And so they are also products of the same system. And even though there are some amazing teachers, um, uh, but that, ha that happens rarely, unfortunately. A lot of, many of us have this bad experience of teachers sort of humiliating, calling a student in front of a classroom and humiliate, humiliating him or her. And this kind of thing stay with people. And teachers are more important in mathematics than in other subjects because mathematics is more abstract. It is very difficult, virtually impossible for any of us to connect, sort of to, to enter the world of mathematics on our own. We have to have someone to guide us into this world. So the teachers are the gatekeepers. And if they are not able to open the doors, if they are themselves not aware of what real, what mathematics is really about, of what, what a ma magical, uh, universe it is, uh, then they will not be able to open the door. So this will be the end of it for most of us. And that's where we are. But at the same time, mathematics is invading our, our world. It's becoming more and more ubiquitous in so many areas of our daily lives. Think about algorithms. Uh, that are governing uh, our lives more and more. Every time you go to buy a book on Amazon or rent a movie on uh, Netflix, you are presented with recommendations which are based on sophisticated mathematical algorithms. They analyze your past choices. They correlate you with other people and then spit out this, 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 uh, you know, suggestions. And it, it, it might seem like a small thing, but it's not because so to a large extent, it's this kind of algorithm is starting to determine 
uh, our lifestyles, things we do, things we learn, things we read, things we watch, and so on. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. Of course, some of it is good, some of it is bad. All I'm saying is that we have to be aware of this. And the, the way we could become aware of this is by understanding what mathematics is about. You're absolutely right in that there's so much information now on the internet that there's no way we can parse it. And so, so often we just go by these recommendations. We mind Netflix queues entirely based on recommendations. And it's, it's kind of scary to think that there's some kind of computer program that is defining my, you know, cultural life on, That's right. on the so computer. We talk about simulation. And of course, one could say that, that this is a far-fetched idea, that um, it's not a scientific idea and so on. Although in my, in my, a piece in the New York Times, I quote an article by three physicists who actually propose some, some tests for this idea, uh, which enabled, which could potentially enable us to see whether something like that could be true or not true. So in other words, something which could prove or disprove this hypothesis. But forget about simulation. I mean, our behavior because of these algorithms, even if you don't believe that we are in any kind of simulation, but our behavior is becoming more and more as if we were in a simulation, we are, we are simulated by those algorithms to a very large extent and to a larger and larger extent, right? And, and my point is that in order to navigate this brave new world, which is becoming more and more controlled by this, by these mathematical models, we have to be aware of what mathematics is. We have to have the necessary knowledge. And it's not like I'm suggesting that everyone should become a mathematician, which would be impossible and impractical. It's more of seeing the big picture. It's more of learning a few chords to play a guitar. You're not going to become uh, the, the world's best guitar player, but it will enrich your life. And likewise with mathematics, learning a few chords, knowing what are the basic objects, what are the most interesting things and concepts in mathematics will help you see things for what they really are will enable you to see things at a deeper level. And what happens these days oftentimes is that sort of the powers that be kind of exploit our ignorance and manipulate us more when we are less aware of mathematics. And I, I wrote an article last year in Slate in which I talked about um, manipulation of economic statistics, such as the consumer price index, CPI, a measure of inflation. If If our government came out and said, we're going to raise your taxes and uh, lower your social benefits. Everyone would be up in arms, of course. So what they did on multiple occasions, actually, they tried to change a formula which calculates the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which is a mathematical formula. And if you lower that number, then your taxes are effectively going up because the tax brackets are pegged to this measure of inflation, your Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, and other social benefits start to go down. And so what happened in 1996 is that the government appointed a commission called the Boskin Commission, which was tasked with saving the government $1 trillion over 10 years. How did they do it? Well, they, su they suggested changing the formula precisely in a way that would save the government $1 trillion. But the basic the way it was presented was, well, we have a group of economists from Harvard, from Northwestern, from this top universities who are telling us that this there is this arcane formula, which is very sophisticated. You're not going to get it anyway. And they tell us that this formula is, is obsolete, that we have to change it. So we're going to change it. 
And so the expectation then is that most people will be like, oh my gosh, this is math. I'm so horrified of mathematics. I'm so, you know, terrified. I'm not even going to try to understand what this formula is. If they are telling me that it should be replaced, then it should be replaced. But then the result is that actually this sort of hits our wallet. This hits our wallets, right? And so what if we lived in a world in which people would not be afraid of asking the question, why? Why are you changing this formula? What's, you know, what is the science behind this? Um, what are the different possibilities? What is the best way to measure inflation? Let's find the best way to measure inflation. Um, and perhaps not everyone would know every detail, but maybe I can ask my neighbor, maybe I can ask my friend. Um, the way we talk about, you know, with other things in science and technology, we're not afraid to, to use iPhones, for example, we're not, or smartphones, we're not afraid to use computers, but these mathematical ideas which go into this, they're not much more sophisticated than the kind of stuff we do on a day to day basis. So if we were to live in such a world in which people had their eyes open to this world of mathematics, if they were not afraid, I think that would reduce these opportunities of manipulation. Uh, you know, related to, to, to mathematics. So what are the 154 chords of mathematics, the, the sort of basic things that most of us don't have any knowledge of? Right. So in my book, um, uh, Love and Math, I talk about some of them. And uh, the first, I, I would say that sort of the number one idea, which I think is very, um, very clear, very important, and which could be, which is very intuitive, which everyone can grasp and understand, is the idea of symmetry. I, I recently visited uh, a school in uh, New York City, uh, which is called Spire Legacy School. It's a school, it's a private school for talented kids, uh, K to six. And I visited uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And I talked to the kids about this. And honestly, I was a little bit, um, you know, uneasy about it. I wasn't sure what the reaction would be. Are they going to get it? Uh, how are they going to react? But actually, they got it very quickly, much faster than adults, actually. And so, and so that sort of proves to me that these ideas are very, um, very intuitive and very clear to, especially to the kids, especially to the kids because their minds are still sort of fresh and unclattered from all this stuff, all the baggage that we, you know, we collect over the years. And the idea is very simple. Um, and I illustrated it using Rubik's Cube. Which, by the way, they could, half of them could solve the Rubik's Cube, which I cannot say that I can do it, but they can. And so when I connected this idea to this uh, puzzle, which they were familiar with, that sort of resonated and they, it became very clear to them. But the idea is very simple that uh, when you have an object like Rubik's Cube, you can do various transformations to it. And um, each transformation is called a symmetry. And so uh, the symmetries themselves have very interesting properties. So, for example, you can apply one, one, of, one, you can rotate one part of the cube and then another part of the cube. And so altogether, if you apply this two back to back, represent an, a new transformation, a new symmetry. So that means that symmetries can be used back to back, sort of applied back to back. Or as we say in mathematics, they can be composed. So we can take a composition of the two symmetries. So think about just rotating, say, I have here a glass, a round glass, so I can rotate it around the central axis. And if I do that, I rotate by any angle, the glass will stay the same. So if I turn away and you rotate it and I look back, I will not know the difference. So that's that's what it means to say that a glass is symmetrical and that every every rotation by any angle will 
preserve it. So it's, it's a symmetry of the glass. And so once we start looking at this, then we can think of a sphere. We can think of, um, you know, another example I talked to the kids about was an example of platonic solids. So think of, think of the dice. Um, uh, which are, you know, have this perfect shape that they are built from, from regular polygons like triangles or squares uh, or pentagons. And so the, each of those objects could be rotated in space in different ways so that the location and the shape of the object stays the same. These are again the, the symmetries. And this is a concept which is, inc- which is incredibly powerful in mathematics because it's not only in geometry where we could see it right away because we can sort of we can sort of like do it with our hands, but also in even in algebra and the theory of numbers, because uh, the same ideas can be used. Because if you have an equation, for example, you can make a transformation, say change of variables, under which the equation will stay the same, which will have the same shape. Say if you have x squared plus y squared equals one, and you exchange x and y, you will get the same equation. But if you had x squared plus y cubed equals 1, then that wouldn't be the case because x is squared, but y is cubed. So if you exchange them, you will get a different expression. So that's clear and intuitively that one is sort of more symmetrical than the other. And once you look at it through this lens, that enables you to learn so much about these equations. And then you move to other areas, for example, quantum physics, the way we physicists were able to theorize about the behavior of elementary particles is by studying their symmetries. So a particle like an electron or a quark, you know, quarks are those little little pieces uh, that could be uh, little particles which could be found inside protons and neutrons, uh, which reside in in the nucleus of every atom. Uh, those particles also have their own symmetries, which are more sophisticated than the just geometric symmetries we are used to. But those symmetries are also just as powerful. And uh, physicists were able to learn so much about them. So in my book, for example, I, I talk about how quarks were predicted and the way quarks were actually predicted by physicists is by using this idea of symmetry. So what a beautiful concept. Totally different from what most people think of mathematics. Nothing to do with numbers a priori. It's more geometric, more intuitive. I, I find in general that people are much more sort of susceptible to the ideas coming from geometry than from algebra at first. But um, you can then connect to algebra. And maybe uh, if you do that, that also kind of sheds a new light on algebra. And there are many concepts like this in mathematics that we could use, like you said, like one of those chords uh, that everyone can learn. And then, you, uh, and then uh, gee, you, you know, next thing you know, you can already play a, a, a song, a Beatles song on a guitar. What a wonderful thing. You didn't have to learn so much. You didn't have to go and study musical notation and so on. You could just learn it very quickly. And that sort of like makes you feel good about yourself and about the world. It's something you understand. That's what I would like to, to happen. I would like everyone to to share this knowledge and to partake in this knowledge. And in fact, that's a revolution that's happening in musical education. You know, kids are learning to play a song first rather than having to do 10 years of notational exercises. Um, and and it's, it's completely shifted the way that music, music is taught. But now in schools, we have, you know, calculus, geometry, algebra. So what would you add or subtract to that trio? How would you shake it up so that people would come away from school loving math instead of fearing it? 
That's right. That's exactly, you said they're exactly the right way. I want them to go, to come away loving math. I want the kids to run to classes, not away from the classes. I want them to, you know, to wake up in the morning and be anxious to go, be hungry for more knowledge and to talk about this stuff with their peers and with their teachers. And, and it's not an ut- utopia at all it, 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 because this stuff is just so powerful and so beautiful. If only People were exposed to it in sort of in the right way. Well, look, I'm not saying that we should necessarily eliminate stuff from our curriculum. I mean, of course, there's no question that kids have to study, you know, numbers and multiplication and fractions and some basic algebra. I'm not sure, for example, that Euclidean geometry, um, you know, all these parallel lines and triangles is really the most important uh, part of geometry that they have to study. Again, let's think about it. It's 2,300 years old at least, right? And uh, just because something's old doesn't mean that it's bad. But non-Euclidean geometry uh, was developed really in the last 100 years, 150 years maybe, uh, more precisely. And uh, it's just so much more beautiful because think about a sphere, for example, the surface of a, a surface of a basketball, uh, or think of it also as the surface of, 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 of the earth, right? So a sphere is an example of sort of a non-Euclidean shape, of a, of a curved shape, which contrasts that to a plane. Sort of like, and I think of a, of a plane as, as an infinite sort of, as an infinite blackboard, or think of it as like a sort of a chess board, which extends infinitely far in all directions. So the, so the, um, the chess board is tiled with squares and every square has, you know, angles, 90, de- all angles are 90 degrees. So they add up to 360 if you take the sum of all four angles. But on the sphere, you also have sort of, sort of like, rectangles because you can draw parallels and meridians and and so the sphere is also tiled by this sort of uh figures which have four corners but if you measure the angles of those and take the sum it will be greater than 360 degrees so that's the difference between flat flat space a plane the chessboard and the sphere not flat non-Euclidean. But sphere is just so much more fun. And once you start, as opposed to this sort of bland and boring plane, or or the way we imagine our three-dimensional space, which we inhabit, we imagine it like a flat space, like a a space which has three Cartesian coordinates which are perpendicular to each other. And that's how most people thought, everyone thought for, for millennia. But actually, Einstein explained to us that space curves around massive objects. So a ray of light, for example, um, bends around the star, right? And so so actually our world, our three-dimensional world, uh, is more like a curved space, is, is, is a curved space than like, so it's more like a sphere than like an infinite chessboard. So in that sense, it's not just, it's not just beautiful, you know, non-Euclidean geometry, but it's actually more accurately describing the world around us it might sound counterintuitive, and it is counterintuitive to most people because they never get exposed to this idea. So my point is, why do we spend? Why don't we teach kids some of Euclidean geometry? But let's say let's take thirty percent of that and 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 use that to explain this beautiful 
non-Euclidean shapes and how they can, you can also look at the shape of a donut, for example. And what a beautiful thing to talk to kids about the difference between a sphere and the shape of a donut or a hyperboloid, for example, or a Klein bottle. A Klein bottle is this sort of, um, weird mathematical object, which is, which is a bottle which has only one side. So if you pour water inside, it will, it will come out also. And so you can, you can even give a Klein bottle to the kids to play with it. So, in other words, I'm, what I'm saying is that let's just, maybe let's set aside 20%, 30% of the class time, which, by the way, they, they spend so much time preparing for those standardized tests. And, uh, and, and you can't blame teachers for that because teachers' performance is tied to the scores on those tests, which unfortunately they neither write nor grade. So, of course, they are forced to, they feel forced to spend so much time preparing kids for this multiple choice questions, which in essence means making them memorize stuff, just mindlessly memorizing stuff. What a waste of time. What if we were to use that time to communicate to them, to convey to them these beautiful ideas in addition to what they're already studying? So that's sort of, that would be the first step in my opinion. So I, I know that Homer Simpson would agree that we should study donuts. Donuts, that's right. More. I talk about Homer Simpson in my book, actually. <laughs> well, did you know that a lot of the writers on The Simpsons are mathematicians? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Simon Singh um, has written a, a beautiful book, uh, yeah. which came out last year, in which he talks about various references, mathematical references in The Simpsons. So he was a previous guest on a very popular episode of Inquiring oh, Minds. So yeah, yeah, is... yeah. No, it's a great book. Yes, I've read it. It's a very nice book. But one of the complaints that a lot of people have is how just irrelevant math seems in their daily lives once they graduate from schools. Um, and, you know, it's that's one thing I think that that is still a big hurdle is that how do we show that that's math right. is relevant? That's right. And you describe one project that you worked on in your book that I thought was a really great example of how math can be relevant. And this is how you developed an algorithm for the diagnosis of certain urological conditions. That's right. Can you lead us through that story? Yes. So that's a very good example. So first of all, I agree with you that we we have to, to get students interested. We have to explain to them how these things connect to the real world. The problem today with, with this conversation today is that people talk, use the word mathematics, but what they talk about is this very limited and obsolete curriculum that people get exposed to. And yes, maybe one could argue that it's not really that relevant. But when I say the word mathematics, that's not what I mean. It's almost like, you know, saying that art, there is nothing to art. Uh, but uh, uh, painting fences and walls. And unfortunately, that's how mathematics is taught today. It's as, it's, it's as if they were teaching an art class in which they were only teaching students how to paint walls and, and fences and, and then making them watch paint dry. So then, of course, if, if, you, if you tell everyone that that's all there is to art, you can't expect people to say that it's relevant. So then any discussion that you will have about quote-unquote art will be just misguided because you will not be discussing the actual art, but you'll be discussing painting fences. And of course, there is a connection between the two because both art, <laughs> fine art, and painting fences uses paint, but to very different hands, right? So let's be honest about it and let's just accept the fact that what we are, t- what most people talk about when they talk, when they say the word math is not really math. It is, it is painting fences. That's what it is. But going back to your question, um, I, um, when I was a student in Moscow, when I was, a, I was an undergraduate, I was exposed to some 
um, applications of mathematics in in in, uh, in medical research, and I worked with actually with three different medical doctors who were all urologists on so three different projects, and I describe one of them in detail in my book Love and Math, and and that had to do with the um, with a, a, a transplant of a, of a kidney. And the question was whether under certain conditions the doctor should, when the, um, the kidney is rejected by the patient's immune system, uh, whether the doctor should try to save the kidney and sort of try to just treat it conservatively or, um, or just have a surgery and remove it. And obviously this is a very serious question because those kidneys are very difficult to, to, to find. And so if you remove it, uh, then uh, the patient needs another one. It's very difficult to find and so on. But yet, uh, if you leave it to, for too long and it's being rejected, that could also have very negative consequences. And so, and I worked with this doctor who was, um, was very, very smart and he had a lot of data, but he couldn't quite point the point and he, he could make a decision just like, you know, like, just like this. He would, he could, uh, given a, a patient, he, he, he was very good. He assembled a lot of experience, he had a lot of experience. He assembled a lot of information, but he couldn't quite verbalize it. He couldn't quite, um, say what is it that he was doing. And so, uh, for uh, the first example, the first idea would be if you're a mathematician and you're talking to, you're talking to a doctor like this, the first idea is to use some statistical methods to analyze data and so on. And it is possible uh, in many cases. But uh, in, I found that in medicine, the data is very inhomogeneous. Some of it is, um, is very precise, like uh, blood pressure, for example, or, uh, or something like that. But some of it is subjective and it's just the patient is asked how he, fe- he or she feels and so on. So it's very difficult to analyze such data. But what I found out is that what could be helpful is just sort of the mathematical mindset. What could be helpful to a doctor is just to have this sort of discussions, kind of interviews with a mathematician. And so what I did, I, I just had sort of interviews, conversations with this doctor where I would, you know, I, I would have a bunch of cases which from the past that he had. Uh, he, he had maybe two or three hundred cases like this. And so I would actually take one and he wouldn't know which one it is. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll just tell him, so look, there is a new patient. Ask me a question, any question you want. So he will ask me, what is the blood pressure? So he started asking me questions and I would be answering. But my approach is different because I'm trained as a mathematician. So I guess I'm trained to think more algorithmically. And so just by talking to him, and every time after four or five questions, he would actually be able to make a diagnosis. And he was always spot on. But the funny thing happened after, you know, talking to him about maybe 15 or 20 patients, I could do the same. I learned to be him. And that's where, so this was my, this was a very interesting experience when I, when I kind of realized how powerful, without any knowledge, I didn't really know what he was asking about, but I could discern patterns in his questions. So in some sense, you could think that I was thinking as a computer, but no, but I think it was more than that. It, it's, it's a certain mindset. It's a sort of approach, very rigorous approach where you, you, you look for those patterns. And, I'm not saying that to, to kind of like, to kind of show off and say, look how smart I am that I was able to do this, even though I'm not, I was not educated in medicine. On the contrary, my point is everyone can do this. Everyone can learn this. This knowledge is readily available and it is extremely useful, not only in the context of, you know, re- uh, rejection of a, of a, um, of a transplanted kidney by an immune system, but in many other areas of our daily lives. So. What is the problem that you are working on now that impassions you? 
You mean in mathematics? Yeah. Because I, one of the problems I'm working on right now is trying to get this stuff out there. No, get, I mean, as a yes, mathematician, I know, I'm, I, you know, this, we, we all have this idea that you've got a blackboard somewhere with a whole bunch of formulas on it that keeps you up at right. night. So that's what is right. yours? That's right. Well, it's, you know, the, the actual process of creating, of discovering new mathematics is very similar to any other intellectual pursuit. Um, you know, I spent my quite a lot of time lately writing. So writing my book, writing various pieces like this piece in the New York Times that you asked me about earlier. And I have to say that the process of writing is very similar to the process of of discovering new mathematics. It's, um, you know, it's sort of a struggle. It's, it's a struggle, uh, uh, with, uh, mostly with yourself in some sense and kind of like trying to structure things that you know, to learn things that you don't find out what is it that you need to know and then putting things together and trying to answer various questions. Um, and so that's what it is. It's not so much about doing calculations because it's, it's more about concepts and ideas and, um, another analogy I'd give you is kind of like uh, solving a jigsaw puzzle. So it's sort of like you have the pieces, uh, but you want to put them in the right way and you don't know what the final image is going to look like. So it's sort of like a mystery, but you know, but so, so there is a lot of room for intuition. There is a lot of room for creativity and passion in mathematics. But, um, my project, the kind of projects that I've been working on in, in the last few years, um, have to do with what's called the Langlands program. And I talk about this in quite a bit of detail in my book. Uh, Langlands, uh, Robert Langlands is a mathematician who is at, uh, works in, uh, in Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study. And actually, uh, it's interesting that uh, in Princeton, he occupies the office, which was the office of Einstein. You know, Einstein worked at, at the Institute for 30 years and, and Langlands has uh, is, is, has been in that office for many years. Um, and so, but, um, so sometimes I say, you know, uh, Langlands, the work of Langlands is perhaps just as important to humanity as relative, Einstein's relativity theory. But everybody knows about Einstein and very few people know about Langlands. So I, I, I think that more, more people should know about this kind of work. So what Langlands proposed in, um, almost 50 years ago is this idea that you can connect different areas of mathematics. And it's almost like connecting different continents. So say you have North America and Europe, and, um, you know, it used to take days to get from one to the other on, on, on the boat, and now it takes hours. But imagine that someone would uh, come up with a kind of a teleportation device, which would transport you from any point in North America to any point in Europe and back. That's what Langlands did to mathematics. And mathematics has different continents, just like our planet has different continents. Um, there is a, there is a continent of number theory, which studies numbers and relations between them. There is a continent of geometry. There is a, another continent which I, um, which is specifically relevant to the Langlands program, which is called harmonic analysis. And this is something that intuitively all of us understand. It has to do with music, for example. You know, we all know, we all realize that, you know, if you go to, um, hear a symphony, uh, the sound of a symphony is composed from different, uh, different notes of different instruments. It's sort of a superposition of sounds of notes of different instruments. And each of those sounds, each of those notes are what we call harmonics. Actually, we call musicians call them harmonics as well as mathematicians. And so it's this idea that, um, you can assemble a very sophisticated sound from this simple harmonics. 
which you can sort of you can represent this as sort of like uh, graphs of uh, trigonometric functions like sine and cosine. But uh, it turns out that you can uh, model very sophisticated signals by using just these very simple waves, these very simple sounds, these very simple harmonics. This is called sometimes Fourier analysis. And this is a, sort of the, the point of departure for this whole area of mathematics, which is called harmonic analysis. So now you've got a continent of harmonic analysis in mathematics, and you've got the continent of number theory. And at the outset, they look completely different. One is about numbers. The other is about sounds and waves and harmonics. And what Langlands discovered is that there is this very intimate connection between the two. And I have to say, we still don't understand why. It's a big mystery, but it works. So we can translate very difficult questions about numbers into questions about harmonics. And those questions could be solved, unlike the questions about numbers. But because we can connect the two, that gives us solutions to questions about numbers. So, for example, um, uh, there was one of the most famous problems in mathematics. Uh, it's called Fermat's Last Theorem. Um, it's, a, it's about uh, an equation, uh, the fact that there's an equation which doesn't have solutions, which was uh, first proposed by a French mathematician, Pierre Fermat. 350 years ago, more than 350 years ago. And for a long time, it, it wasn't, it couldn't, people couldn't solve it. Um, and, um, the way the solution came about was through the ideas of the Langlands program. So it was really a, like a tremendous, a tremendous uh, development, tremendous advance in mathematics. And this is just one example of this all encompassing program, which people now call Lang the, the Langlands program. And what's also interesting is the same ideas also propagated to other areas of math like geometry, but also to quantum physics. And so my work in recent years has been on trying to understand these parallels and analogies between quantum physics and mathematics and using the knowledge we acquire by using Langlands ideas in mathematics to, to answer some complicated questions in quantum physics. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing these answers. And I think you are uniquely suited to be able to allow people like me who are not mathematicians to understand it. Thank you. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Let me just say, I really, really want Frankel to be right, but I cannot get over a counterfactual, I guess, in my head. If I had been taught math in a very different way, would it be now intuitive to me in a way that it is not? And I... I don't have any, any way to answer that question, but it's just the one that I'm left with. I mean, I think the most powerful thing about what he says to me is this idea that we don't even understand what the fundamental concepts that drive mathematicians are. I mean, it's not calculus, geometry, algebra from the way that he tells it, but some other completely different ideas. And so I'm just excited that there are people out there who are trying to translate these concepts to the general public. Yeah, and and I I, I want to hear more. You know, I, I thought that you know I actually Googled symmetry, and I'm trying to learn more about like maybe this is my way in. Maybe you know I'll get back those lost years or what have you. I mean, you know, I think also that you know as you as you grow up a little bit, so it's not just high school math, but as you see the world and you get a little bit of a perspective that you don't have when you're just dreading those math classes, you kind of start to see things because then you're ready to see them. You know, I think I think about statistics and I think about, you know, sort of economics in a way that, that I wouldn't have that's partly by experience too. So I think that's important. Yeah, and hopefully our ability to image these things like, you know, show videos of spheres and instead of just focusing on a textbook that just has static pictures will really help a lot in terms of math education. 
Yep, but not good news for Euclid. <laughs> nope. But he reigned for 2,000 years. So. <laughs> He's had his time. Yeah. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.